Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, wherever you might happen to be. It's really a pleasure today to be talking to Sean Doolitter. Let me try it again. I'm not. I'm drinking tea. Honestly, that's all that is. Sean Doolittle in Device-Free Weekend, which I think is a perfectly wonderful title. And I have to ask you, Sean, did you happen to see or have any clue about The Glass Onion before you wrote this book? I saw the movie when it came out, but no, I uh, I, I wrote the book, I think, in 2020. Right. So it was a little ways before Glass Onion, but I definitely... Uh, Definitely felt some device-free weekend energy when we went to see Glass Onion. Well, there was. I already knew the answer because it takes so long for books to get written and get into print. There's no way that he could have foreseen the Glass Onion, but there's some interesting parallels. I also think, you know, I wonder if Elon Musk has just sort of incited writers to write about eccentric tech or overly, <laughs> overly, whatever, over-the-top tech billionaires because there are five or six books where, you know, those guys are... They seem to be at the front of our actors, uh, national right? conversation, don't they? They really do. <laughs> so joining us is Eli Craner, who I'm delighted to see is going to um, be our guest host. And I, I just told him, uh, pardon me while I get my phone open again. Um, I just opened my email to discover that Eli's April 4th book release called Ozark Dogs is an indie next pick. Now, what is that, you will say? And the answer is that the American Bookseller Association has a list that they call for independent booksellers. Um, so there's what, like 15 or 20 on the list, Eli, is that right? Yeah, I think that I can is. look myself here. Hold on while I check. Um, yeah, we're lucky we're getting him for this, Barbara, pretty soon. We're not gonna be able to get Eli Craner for uh, live streams. We're going to have to smack him down so he doesn't get too big a head. <laughs> but anyway, let me read you because it's a really nice recommendation made by a bookseller in Little Rock, Arkansas. Wow, this Southern noir thriller is ripping. Blood is thicker than water in these Ozark towns, but family relationships are complicated and there are no easy answers leading to hard and surprising choices. Absolutely unforgettable. So Eli and I, Eli and I will be talking in April. Or maybe you'll be talking to Patrick, who'll probably steal you from me. <laughs> he does that. Right. Because uh, he's the noir guy. Uh, but anyway, I get Eli tonight and I get Sean tonight. So it's all wonderful. Um, are you prepared with brilliant questions and so forth? Or do you want me to natter on a bit? What would you like, Eli? Yeah, we can natter around a little bit. I, I would like to say, though, before we even get going, you know, Sean and I both have the, the bald thing going and we met at Balshacon, um when was that? September? That was the first time we met in real life. Yeah. And twice, two distinct times at, over the three-day span that I was in Minnesota, I had somebody come up behind me, two, two different women, you know, put their hand on my shoulder and say, Sean? And then I'd turn around and they would be like, oh, you're not Sean. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like a beard in their face. And, and yeah, but Sean and I are both taller than average and and you know yeah. what used to happen at BoucherCon, like back a few years ago people would come up to me and say are you harlan coben and i would have to <laughs> disappoint them and say no i'm only sean Dupin. and now they come up to me and say are you eli craner and i still have to disappoint them you just can't get away from eli can you no uh, so just a few words about sean here he's the critically acclaimed author of eight standalone crime and suspense novels 
which have received the Barry Award and the International Thriller Writers Award, among other honors. He's a native of Nebraska, and he lives in western Iowa. My father grew up in Ames, Iowa. Or no, I'm sorry, Perry. Perry, Iowa, which is over east, isn't it? I don't know where Perry is. I'll have to look that up. But um, Ames isn't so far from us, about two hours, I guess. Okay. So are you unhappy that you're losing the... Um, first crack at the presidential whatever it is it's been a terrible right, uh, that that's definitely a big change and there's i suppose plenty of things to be unhappy about depending on what side of different issues you fall on but i guess we just keep on going right yes well we, we're a politics free zone here so yes. we decided that we were a bookstore that was engaged in entertainment rather than um wise well you know our big thing is commercial fiction so I think that if you're expecting people to come in and enjoy it, um, then you then you need to make it a fun experience and not, you know, one where everybody everybody gets excited. Besides, Arizona is so weird. We have Kari Lake and, you know, you couldn't write a thriller with Kari Lake in it. It would be any weirder than she is. So <laughs> now I've been political, right? Right there. You are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, it's kind of a national embarrassment. Review your own terms and conditions, Barbara. <laughs> yeah, well, there you are. So I did see, Eli, and then I will be quiet, but there was a really interesting interview with John in, I think, The Big Thrill, um, but it might have been in, but I think it was The Big Thrill. And anyway, the question was as, can you pinpoint a moment or incident that sparked the idea for this book, Device-Free Weekend? Do you remember what you said? Because if you don't, I happen to have it right here. I, I kind of don't. What did I say? All right. You said novels generally come together for me when ideas from different places start sticking together. The basics for device-free weekend involved a news story I read about restaurants that take patrons' mobile phones at the door. Now, you know, that's not just um, the glass onion, but there's a, a chef, a movie about a chef, a TV thing. I can't think of what it was called. Are you thinking of the menu? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the yeah. same thing, right? You know, they... <laughs> another, yeah. And basically, when they take your device away, they leave you what? Powerless, uncommunicative, helpless, you know? No We're way sort of lost them. without them, aren't we? Yeah. Well, but there's no like 911 or, you know, any, it really makes you vulnerable in a way that I, I find um, is very unsettling and, you know, interesting for, for what you're writing about. Anyway, takes patrons' mobile phones at the door, followed by a couple of different travel-related stories about various device-free destination, pa destination packages. All these stories shared a theme of people yearning to disconnect from our connected world for a while. Add to that my own experiences of technology, particularly social media. There, Eli, you have something to explore already. And the reflection on earlier times that comes with aging and device-free weekend started to shape up. So you brought a lot of different things together to get inspired for this novel. Yeah, I, I'm glad that I said all that. That sounds about like what I would have said tonight if you'd asked me the same question. So I, I guess I'm keeping my story straight. But but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just, um, you know, a few different uh, things that I saw that kind of came together all at the same time as I was sort of, you know, I, I've, I, 
I've kind of, it, it took me a while to find my own comfort level with social media and the, you know, uh, how to be a happy citizen on social media and not spend the whole day um, wound up about one thing or another or angry about one thing or another or, you know, whatever. And, you know, I, as I was looking, as I was looking for what my next book idea was going to be, I thought, well, what, what do I care about now? What things concern me? What things interest me? And what I discovered is that the thing that I spend a lot of my time thinking about now is what people are saying or believing or doing on social media. Um, and that combined with things I was seeing elsewhere in the culture about people, like you, like you mentioned, uh, uh, feeling a desire to kind of get away from, you know, being plugged in. Um, uh, th that just all seemed to fit together and click in a way that started to feel like a book. I have to say that while I don't do any personal social media, so I spare myself a lot of grief. I have, I have people, as they say in Hollywood, I have people <laughs> do social media for the store. When my husband and I went off to sail in a yacht around French Polynesia, Tahiti and so forth, I thought I was actually going to have like an eight or 10 day break. And, you know, didn't it, because there isn't a publicist in New York that doesn't think I'm online 24 seven or the whole thing. And, you know, I wanted to just toss it to the sharks. I really did at one point think. Well, it becomes hard to disconnect, especially, you know, when you're, when you're busy and people want your attention. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's hard to look away. Um, but there's no, there's every, every day is really 24, you know, a 24 hour day, seven days a week. Well, even day. within my own family, I, you know, I, I tend like, I tend to, when I get home, I tend to get very sloppy about, you know, leaving my phone in another room or, you know, spending time in one part of the house while my phone is still out in my truck or, you know, wherever. Um, and even just even in my own family, I mean, that's how we communicate. You know, they, if I, if my, if I don't have my phone in front of me, one of my kids could be trying to get a hold of me. My wife could be trying to get a hold of me. Uh, you know, even, even at home, you have to stay connected. Yeah. And they expect an instant response. All right. I've mattered long enough, Eli. So over to you. Yeah, well, I'll play off this whole theme. So before I wrote, uh, before Don't Know Tough came out, I self-published a book called Books Make Brains Taste Bad. And it was a middle grade book inspired by like my love of goosebumps growing up, like R.L. Stein goosebumps. Yeah. And the whole, the whole premise, Sean, was um, there was this school where it was like Fahrenheit 451, you know, books had been outlawed. Um, and anyway, come to find out the school's run by zombies and they're using like VR headsets. I wrote this in the, in the, the throes of the pandemic. So they're using headsets to educate the students, but they're actually frying their brains like, like deep fried like chicken so they can eat them. And the only way the students can save themselves is by reading real books because books make brains taste bad because they yeah. tough because it toughens up the brain muscle yeah, right? yeah. it's yeah, like yeah. it's like a workout you know for your brain so i just you know and, and i went i got to go around to like elementary schools um my both my parents are public school teachers and i i was i am a public school teacher and and so i remember one thing this was mainly you know like third fourth fifth sixth grade and i would ask these kids at the end of like this presentation which was just about reading like you know, the power of reading. I would ask them at the end, how many, if, raise your hand if you take a screen to bed. 
So it could be like have a TV on, have a laptop, have a pet tablet, a phone. And so these are like nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds. Hmm. It was like over 95%, you know, and my wife works in the medical field. She's a, a, a nurse practitioner for pediatrics. And um, one of the biggest things she sees is, you know, like, like kids can't sleep and then it leads to everything else you know it leads to obesity it leads to um depression it leads to all this stuff so anyway i say all that to say like you know you have some really the book is kind of candy coated in this way of like commercial fiction but there's some really deep philosophical insights into the you know like you, I think you, you had that bit where like, if you, you knew when you made the atom bomb, like what the, what the problems were going to be, you know, what the, what the damage would be. But if you make social media, you don't necessarily know that, you know, and it has, that's one of the big, you know, questions of the whole book is, you know, which, which way, or if you, what would you do? So, yeah, I just wanted to, to say that to you. I mean, where do you stand like beyond just your own like family and like, you know, as an author navigating social media, but you really play off and, and not to give any spoilers, but, you know, what do you think this has done to us as humans? You know, what do you think this stuff, how has it changed us? It's really interesting that you bring that up. I mean, I, I do think a lot of this has to do with how technology is conditioning us to uh, consume, process, use information. Um, I, I'll bet your wife has probably seen something like this happen. I remember um, when one of my nephews was maybe like two years old or something, just kind of toddling around, everybody was over to the house for Thanksgiving. And I remember watching him go up to our, uh, <clears throat> coffee table where we had some magazines sitting out. Um, and he was, he was like trying to pinch zoom and tap on this magazine because like, you know, as far in his experience, it should do something when you tap on it, right? Because it, you know, and it, like the a hard copy magazine sort of befuddled him. Um, and you know that whole thing about you know taking screens to a lot of people say, don't look at screens for thirty minutes before bed or whatever if you want to uh, if you want to sleep better. Um, you know, and then other studies that you know show like. There, there's a documentary out there called The Social Dilemma. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I've uh, seen. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way that the way that documentary kind of gets into the way some of these platforms are designed to be addictive. I mean, the way they the way they release dopamine in our brains is sort of like very carefully calculated and and tweaked for maximum, you know, engagement. Um, and all of that adds up, you know, when you, you know, I can feel I don't know how you feel, Eli, like you read a lot of books. I read a lot of books, Barbara, your, your life is books, but I can feel my own attention span shortening. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so like, I don't, I don't, I don't know where, like, I don't know where those comments go or I don't have any definitive statement to make about it, but it is part of what I wanted to be sort of woven into the book was just this idea of, um, you know, technology will have an inevitable impact on us and on society. What is it? Is it good, bad? How are, how are we changing? Yeah, man, definitely. <laughs> I, I, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had a, I got to interview Lisa Unger back like in the sum, summer. And so we had a, a really 
good conversation. And as she put me on this. Was that for secluded cabin sleep six? No, well, it was just for my shop talk deal. Oh, okay. So I would, you know, just talking craft and, and how we do what you do, which plays off of what you were just saying. You know, this idea that we are authors and to be an author, it takes immense amounts of solitude and, and quiet and, and right when I was getting to her, so it was the summer and my debut had come out like in the spring and I was still kind of coming off of this, like wanting to go check, you know, like Amazon reviews or, you know, my social media to see like what new thing somebody had said, which it was just making me sick because here I was trying to write the next book. Um, and every 15 minutes, it was like an alarm was going off in my head, you know, to like, right. Check, go check. Yep. And I'd never mm -hmm. been that way before. I, I held on to like a flip phone, you know, for like a long time, which was like enough that I could call somebody if something bad happened. Uh, but I, you know, it, it wasn't like I was just going to be glued to it because it was, it was too cumbersome. Um, but Lisa put me on this book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, because when I, when I was telling her this stuff, she was like, absolutely not like you, you cannot be an author you know and be writing a scene and every 10 minutes jump across and, and and she wasn't probably that hardcore about it but it struck me and so this book uh, it's like a like a self-help kind of book you know just talking about regaining like deep focus and it's kind of like a workout you know like if you know about weightlifting or any of that stuff a lot of those strength gains come in the last like the last set you know like the last rep you know like once you've torn everything else down and i think a lot of that's true with what we do you know you get to into a scene you stay in it for so long and then that's when the good stuff comes and so if you're jumping in and out right. so i i wondered if you did any stuff you know i'm always interested in talking craft you know like leaving your phone in the truck and stuff you know do you have any tips or, or anything for people out there, you know, readers who are wanting to regain focus. Cause I know it happens to me with reading books too. I'll read a couple of pages and then think, oh, I'm gonna check, you know, something over here. And it's a very right. dangerous thing for our industry. Cause you know, it's pulling readers away, you know, the screen calls to so many. So do you have any tips or tricks or things you do to stay in the-, in the Well, I, I don't have I don't have any uh, like life changing tips and tricks, but I do. Uh, I in my younger years, I used to write very late at night. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've had to convert to becoming an early morning writer because I'm not <laughs> good. At that. I know. <laughs> and what I found, especially like with Device Free Weekend, that you know, uh, you know, and here again, there are some studies that talk about like you know, the, the distance between, you know, when you wake up from sleep, you're still kind of in a kind of a creative dreamy sort of state that can be conducive to, to writing. And I find that it is. And the surest way to shatter that sort of uh, warm, golden, fertile moment is to start by checking Twitter um, or whatever. I, you know, so like I, I have a pretty strict rule about like when I get up in the morning and I come in here and I sit down in the chair and I've got my coffee and I'm ready to go get right into the book. Don't check the internet first because that just destroys the spell, you know? Um, so like, I guess that's one thing that I would say is what, kind of what you're alluding to is keep, keep that deep focus moment 
those moments separate from your scrolling moments because I had the same experience that that you had, Eli. Like you know, you you find yourself just like you 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 can't stop checking even after you start to feel a little gross and you start to feel a little full. Um, you just keep eating. Yeah. <laughs> um, Madness so, lies in checking Amazon reviews. Shame on you, both of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, they're going to give you one star because the book was later. They didn't like the price. That's just, you know. Ridiculous. That's something that I find. Uh, one thing that I like about getting a little older, Barbara, is that I find it a little easier to not look. Like when I, when I was starting out, Eli, one or two books in, I couldn't not look for that stuff. I mean, come on, how do you how do you ignore what people are saying about your books? But um, right. it, I find it's getting a little bit easier in my fifties than it was when I was in my thirties. <laughs> yeah, man. No, I mean for me, it's like you write in the dark for so long. You know, like my mom, my wife, like they're the only people that would ever read or have anything to say about. So just the fact that anybody's saying anything. You know, like I'm an old football coach and, and quarterback. So like I have thick skin, like it doesn't, it doesn't really, none of them really bother me one way or the other, but I am addicted to just seeing, being in the conversation, you know, like and hearing, hearing that. But I also wanted to make a shout out to Sean and I have the same agent. So David Hell Smith is, is out That's there. It. David, if you're out there, hello, we're, we're representing, yep, DHS. But uh, David, when I first signed on with David, I remember he had this great thing he said about commercial fiction. You know, David's a commercial fiction guy. Um, and he, he said something that really stuck with me. And I think he was actually talking about like Ace Atkins books. Um, but he said, you know, what he liked the most about Ace and, and about stuff that really appealed to David was that it was current and that it it was candy coated in like a digestible way you know like uh, like something that 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 could go down easy but once it was inside you know it had jagged edges like once once that candy coating came off <laughs> it had jagged and i've really uh, that has really stuck with me you know from david so we've been talking kind of about not necessarily the candy coating of device free weekend but we've been talking about you know what i think would draw a lot of people in you know this this idea of, but I also wanted to go into this book story to publication because I kind of know this story, right? So, I mean, if there's any writers that are out here, I mean, this this book had a long road to get to where it is, right? And I don't know how much you want to share that, but it, it was a long, a long run in there. Well, it was certainly, I mean, it, there was certainly a long period between selling it and, and publication. Yeah. Um, but like in terms of my own career, it was a, it was a long road, I guess, from from there to here, just because kind of I had a sort of a first phase of my career where I did uh, six books and then, you know, hit a little patch of burnout and like kind of felt the need to try writing some other things and, you know, spent a few years doing that. And, um, you know, this is the first device free weekend is the first time I kind of like have been back in that big big thriller sort of mode. And in fact, I've never really been in this yeah. kind of mode before. My earlier books usually were a little, you know, the story scope was a little smaller. It was, it was, um, you know, smaller in size, the, the people uh, and what they were up to the was a little bit smaller, yeah. not, not like change the whole world stakes. 
but I wanted to try that. I wanted to try a bigger book. I wanted to try something that uh, had a little bit more candy coating, as you say, and a little bit uh, a broader, bigger scope. Um, and so, you know, this was my pandemic book. You know, everyone wrote a book during the pandemic, right? This one was mine. Um, and, it was, you know, it was very fortunate to uh, get picked up at Grand Central, but you know, they had a plan for how to position it. And uh, that plan was 2023. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that was plenty of time for things like glass onion to come out or, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's nothing, you know, particularly interesting in, in that other than, you know, you really have to just keep on, you know, keep, if you spend all your time waiting to uh, see what's going to happen with the book that you just finished, you're not going to make much progress on whatever book is next. Um, and so I think the key to, you know, my advice to any younger writers out there would be start working on the next thing and just keep your head down like you've done, Eli, and just, you know, keep, keep writing, keep, keep working. Yeah, definitely. Well, and that's the, the thing for the, those of you who haven't read the book that are listening, you know, there's there's so much and this I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question about research here you know like this book takes place on you know this this remote private island much like glass onion but but there's so much like technology and there's so much um really vivid descriptors you know about how this house that's out there works and the tunnel systems that are in there not again trying not to do any spoilers but but I mean what did you do for research, man? I mean, or did you research? Or how did you how did you get into the world of this, you know, this sort of this sort of money like this, this high? Because that's always really interesting to me when you when we start talking about you get quotes about like Jeff Bezos and, and you know, like what percentage of his money is like, you know, 50 million dollars. And it, it'd be like, you know, 10 cents of my money, you know, and, and that's the kind of people or at least one person in your novel that that we're dealing with here. So how did you get into that? Right. Well, I'll tell you, I tend to get hung up on like I tend to spend more research on um, like there, there's a scene in the book where a character has to get from one place to another in a boat during a storm and he's got to pass through a lock system to get where he's going. And I will get really hung up on like, okay, what do they do if there's lightning? Like when are the, what time is the lock open? What time is it closed? Like those tiny little details that add verisimilitude to things. I can, I, I spend more time researching that stuff, I would say, than, than the big like world of technology. Um, for that stuff, like my preference, I mean, I, I work in tech and, and, you know, so I've got a little bit of a sense of, you know, what a, what a product development in a technology company is like enough to fake it, certainly. Um, and we all have phones. We know how they work. We all use computers. We know how they work. I think, if, you know, if you put your imagination to work, you can kind of extrapolate what things might be able to do in a year or two, three, four from now. Um what I, I what I did not want to happen was to be so well versed in the uh, uh, the ins and outs of technology that the that this novel this thriller novel that I'm writing becomes um, you know a user manual or or something like that. Like I didn't I didn't want to bog the story down with too much technology research. 
but I did want the tech stuff that's in there to feel believable. Yeah. Um, so is the smart house that you created, is it, you know, is it in, based on anything real or did you just imagine that, you know? Well, you know, I just, use, I used thing? what I did know from our current home automation technology and thought, well, gosh, if somebody had enough money, they probably could implement or install something like, you know, the things that Ryan's right. house can do. And, you know, and I'm, I'm aware of how satellites work and I'm aware of generally of how the internet works and, and what we can do online and what you can accomplish. And so I think for that kind of stuff, I, I kind of kept the research a little bit lighter um, but I will spend a day researching like, okay, how fast can a, can a 800 horsepower boat travel? <laughs> how long would it take to get from this place to that place? Or how, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know those little, those little details, um, that seem unimportant, but when, when they're wildly wrong can really destroy the spell of reality that you're trying to create. Um, I'll I'll read I'll spend quite a bit of time researching what feels like not a very important point in the book just to kind of you know to keep that spell intact as much as possible. Well, and, you know, we're living in an era where somebody can hijack your house. Actually, there was a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal about electric cars and the fact that you know you can be hijacked in your car. Somebody can hack into it because it's basically a traveling computer. Yeah, it's comforting. You know, isn't an it? effective kidnapping operation. You're trapped inside your vehicle the whole bit. And, you know, if you have a smart house and, you know, all those systems, in fact, they really can be hacked. So, you know, that's, I'm, that's I'm true. cautioned in that sense. I'd rather have a key to my door than, you know, all that fancy stuff. In, in terms of the wealth aspect, like I don't, to my knowledge, I don't know any billionaires. I'm certainly not close friends with any billionaires. Um, but I, I do have close friends and I, and I have people that I met in college and, and, and I know what it's like to reunite with somebody that you haven't met for 20 years. And I've been around people of wealth enough to kind of like see what the superficial trappings of, of lifestyles of the rich and famous might be. So like when I, when I approached this book, I was approaching, you know, these, the, the, the characters in this book met in college in the early nineties, which is when I went to school and when I met my college friends and, uh, um, you know, they met in the time right before the internet kind of became a prevalent part of society. And I remember, I remember that transition and what that was like, um, you know, and I, and I'm sort of, I'm always fascinated by, you know, the the main the 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 rich guy in the book Ryan Ryan Cloverhill, um, I I don't know what Ryan Cloverhill's daily life is like, but I know what it's like to reunite with somebody that you haven't seen in twenty years, and whatever whatever twists and turns your lives have taken, and whatever relative social status you have, I'm always interested in how you immediately revert back to the interpersonal dynamic that you had with that person when you left off. Um, and I, and so I, so I, I wanted to, I wanted to play with that dynamic a little bit of, you know, people who were the closest of friends at one time in life, um, whose their lives have changed a lot 
over 25 years, but when they get back together, it's 1992 again. Um, and here they are on this island with no internet, just like it was back in the college dorm. And I wanted I wanted their interpersonal dynamic to feed from that personal history more than yeah. their, their current lives. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was it for me. So it was the candy coating of oh, device free weekend, you know, billionaire uh, private island. That's what gets you in on the cover. Um, and then when you got in there, it was just like, you know, like an episode of Friends or something, you know, where where you, you had these really strong relationships and it, the, you know, the 90s were I was I was an early 2000s guy, you know, with with my youth generation, uh, but I knew enough about it. You know, I, I was around enough that, man, like it really felt like a love letter. And I think I've said that to you, you know, and that you're starting to see more of that, like you're starting to see that stuff coming through in popular culture more and more like looking back at the 90s and really, you know, because I hear these things now where it's like the 90s were just as far away now as it was the oh. two as the 70s were, you know, in, in 2000. Those um, kind of that kind of perspective stuff just always blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, man. And so I just wanted to to really, you know, give you a shout out on on the character building and the tension that you did, you know, because you've got this billionaire and, and then what you just said, I, I have those friends, you know, who you see after 10 years and it's like you time just disappears. Right. But then I also have those friends that you see after 10 years and it's like you don't even know them anymore and you do a really good job of doing having both of that kind of group, you know, like there's, there's shards of those people. So it, that, that friendship dynamic, um, that was really cool, man. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, that talking about, you know, nostalgia and when, when is it time to start looking back at a decade? Um, you know, the, the part of the reason this book is set in the Pacific Northwest is from my own experience when I was a Nebraska kid going to college, um in you know the early 90s i remember i took a trip to seattle during this would this was like during peak seattle when like when grunge was starting to take over the right and and everybody was thinking and talking about seattle and i i remember going to seattle and like having my first cup of starbucks coffee and and like you know seeing this new place and it, it was a very formative trip at a formative time in my life when I was, you know, expanding my horizons a little bit in school and learning new things. And so as, as I started looking back at those experiences, um, that seemed like the most appropriate time for these characters to be looking back on too, because it comes from my own experience. And, you know, obviously there's the tech culture and tech world out, out there anyway. So that all fit, but but yeah, it's, um, you know, we went through a period of kind of 80s nostalgia a little while back, and now maybe it's time for 90s nostalgia. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think. <laughs> well, I'm not going to comment on this conversation since <laughs> 1950s, guys. Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think about that, like, you know, the, the early 90s for my kids is like the 50s for me. I mean, it's, you know. No, I know, but I actually did go to college in the 50s. So, you know, for me, the 90s seems like, you know, yesterday. 
Well, um, does 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 that does your college time in the fifties now? I mean, I'm sure it feels like the distant past in some ways, but does does it still feel like accessible to you, Barbara? In your well, in your I spent mind? I spent a lot of my life in college and graduate school and so forth. And yeah, no, I can I can remember Stan. The thing that was interesting about going to Stanford in 1958 was leaving in 1963 with a master's degree, and the revolution that occurred in San Francisco in that five years was so extraordinary that you know you'd hardly recognize it. My husband's five years younger than I am, and he's really a child of the 60s, and I'm really a child of the 50s, and he's closer in spirit to my kids, who yeah. are you know children of the 70s or 80s. Um, there's an enormous, enormous difference between the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you know, and I live through it. I mean, you know, I look at all this stuff going around us. I'll come back to politics and remind everybody that I live through McCarthy, you know, mm. I lived through the blacklist. And I mean, it was right over the border in Wisconsin because I grew up in Winnetka, which is the suburb of Chicago. And, you know, there was a long spell there when we thought that it, terrible things were were happening and there was no way out it was very depressing and you know it informs my view of politics today one of the things that i do remember is that eventually you move past it into some other synthesis it's just living through it that's right. really hard you know as an historian i remind people that um it was a 20-year war between england and france that wasn't decided until waterloo literally was not decided until the last minute at Waterloo, who was going to win? 20 years. And then you read Jane Austen and you have no clue at all that there's even a war going on in the background. Right. So that's a long period of uncertainty, you know, with the world order. So we're a year into the Ukraine war. And yeah, know. I mean, it feels, it does feel to me anyway, like, you know, what you said about decade, you know, the, the 40s feeling very different from the 50s, you know, I, I've thought about that too. Like, to me, for me anyway, the mid eighties feels night and day different than the mid nineties. Mm -hmm. 2005 doesn't feel quite so different to me than 2015, but I think 2025 is going to feel a lot different. You know, we, we seem to be in a, another kind of transition period. I mean, and I, and I, the, you know, the period of this book, when these characters met, I think was another kind of transition period where they were, you know, we were coming out of the late eighties into the nineties Again, you know, music was changing. Uh, the internet was not far away. And once the internet, you know, came to everyone, then everything started really changing at an accelerated pace. So, you know, 1999 feels very different to me than 1989. Um, and I think, I think, I think we're going to look back on this period too the same way. Yeah, it's interesting that you can kind of track how people are feeling about the world if you look at what thrillers were published when, mm. you know, um, how they how they hold up and so forth. I think we should emphasize in talking about device-free weekend that the people who went to the island did not go there to escape their devices. It was not, that was not their intention. It was forced upon them when they in got In fact, there. a couple of the characters very much would like to not give up their devices um, but yeah, they they were they they were going at the invitation of an old friend, uh, and that was his that was his requirement, um, which maybe should have, maybe should have been a clue for them. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I think I think uh, of course I'd seen the glass onion, so now I was already alert to that. But no, I think you're right that if you 
it should have been a clue that there was going to be an agenda different than what they had expected. But of course, that doesn't mean they could have anticipated the full agenda. Well, you know, we were, I was at the BoucherCon that Eli mentioned where, where Eli and I met. Minneapolis, uh, right. I was, I was on a panel um, about locked room stories, um, which I guess Device Free Weekend could roughly qualify um, as, a, as a locked room story. And, you know, the, the way, like, <laughs> this is exaggerating things uh, a little bit, but there's a sense where it almost kind of feels like all you need to do to lock somebody in a room now is take their phone away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's a term that is totally misused. Locked room means in mystery dumb, it means that there's an impossible crime that will occur. Sure. If the room was locked down and somebody's dead inside and there was no egress or ingress, then so the whole thrust of a book about a locked room is how did it happen? And you know, how did it happen? The term's Not gotten a little loose. Why here. Did it yeah. What you're talking about is the closed circle, as Agatha Christie, and then there were none. It's the country house murder. It's the cabin on the ship or the old theater or Neurowolf in the banquet room or, you know, and you do that to have an impermeable border so that only the people in that place can be the suspects for whatever is going on. Right. But I mean, I'm sure in, in all the authors that you've talked to over the years, like I'm sure you, you remember hearing people say like a few years ago, I remember writers were kind of concerned with how cell phones were affecting plots because it was harder to it was harder to um it, it was harder to put people in jeopardy when when they when everybody was able to just pull a phone out of their pocket and call for help um but now i think we're seeing uh writers go the other way where we we use that technology as a as a plot point or you know whether whether we can communicate or not seems to be uh, you know, a common uh, plot device in, in fiction now. Well, it really is. You know, any self-respecting criminal, the first thing they ought to think about is leaving their cell phone at home. That's right. <laughs> Before they head out for their criminous act. You know, I mean, you saw it with the, you know, the January 6th thing. We had a small riot here in Scottsdale where a bunch of guys from Phoenix thought they could, you know, batter their way into the ice store of the Mercedes dealer and so forth. And 100% of them got caught because they all brought their cell phones with them, you know, so they could post their their stuff on social media or their, you know, could be tracked or something. You think, hello. So I don't think that, you know, I think authors are a step ahead of criminals. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so. Authors have worked out, you know, what they need to do with leaving the criminals far behind. <laughs> it's true. But you're well, right. They have to be part of the fabric of, of the story now because they are ubiquitous. And I think it's easy, it's easy to talk about technology and social media and whatever as a as a bad thing or a potentially sinister thing or a or a potentially problematic thing. But, you know, for all that can bother me about social media, it's also great. I mean, Eli, you and I have gotten to know each other uh, through social media. When we when we were all locked down because of a virus, that was the only way we had to keep in touch with people. Um, you know, great technology facilitates great things all the time. And I wanted that to be part of the book, too, not not just um you know a horror story about how terrible social media is but the, you know to also address the fact that 
much of what we do in our lives now uh, wasn't even possible before some of this technology existed. And so, you know, it's that, it's that tension between the, the, you know, the benefits and the pitfalls that, that interests me. Yeah. Well, and you, you, just what you were talking about earlier, like you spend all this time researching, you know, how a boat goes up a lock in the, with the lightning strike, like, what are you doing that research on? You know, what are we all doing? We're not traveling you know, to the lock and dam and having an interview. Um, if I open one is... of these doors behind me, there's a there's a drawer filled with old maps from AAA that I used to collect as a writer. Because if I was setting a story somewhere else, like I, I needed maps for reference. Now you can drive across this country without ever leaving your computer. Yeah. <laughs> Or you can have well, it track you into going somewhere. You know, you can go, hey, Google, and give right. it an address, and then it actually talks to you while you're, while you're driving, which is actually a lot safer than if you're trying to study a map or, or you know, watch the GPS thing unfold. So, you know, it does bring you more safety in some respects. But on the other hand, you know, if you're behind somebody at a green arrow and they're sitting through it, you know it's because they're looking at their phone and they're not looking at the traffic light and you want to kill them. That's right. That's right. You know, talking about, you know, college in the early 90s versus now, like I remember, you know, doing research for a paper, you would go to the library and they would they would have these tall canvas Santa Claus sacks that you could fit like, I don't know, 25 books in and you would check out everything you wanted, fill up one of these canvas bags and lug it back to wherever you were working. And my kids, I don't, they don't, I don't know if they even go to the library to write papers anymore. They can do it all from there. <laughs> I don't know. So Eli, how are things in the Ozarks? You know, do you find that cell phones are just as ubiquitous in the Ozarks? <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, we just got we just got shoes a couple years ago. Shoes and real automobiles. Right. I thought there were no. places where you could have gaps due to the, you know, oh yeah. I'm just playing, Barbara. We get, I get that. I really do get that, though. Like, if I go places, I went to school down in Boca Raton for a year to play football at Florida Atlantic University. Um, and I remember being, I was the only dude from Arkansas on the team because football is, there's a lot of good football in South Florida. Um, and I remember, you know, these players kind of looking at me sideways and being like, I had really long hair at the time. I was I was getting the most out of my hair while I had it. And um, I remember them like looking at me sideways and being like, you know, you guys wear shoes in, in Arkansas. And so that that has really been funny. But no, we like where I live, I live out on a lake. Um, it's what I always tell people is it's it's true grit country. So Charles Portis's great novel, uh, True Grit, Maddie Ross is from Dardanelle, from Yale County. So that is literally my backyard um, looking across Lake Dardanelle um, right here. And we do cell phones. I mean, like where I'm at my house, there are spots around here where, where service will kind of go in and out. That's right. Yeah, but I, I do, I mean, I teach, um, I teach online now to kids in like our juvenile correctional facilities here in Arkansas, I teach English 11 and 12. And um, they, uh, the thing that is really like talk about change and what's coming this, you know, this chat 
this chatbot crap. Like they have been, they they started doing that before it was running. Like you know, on the national news stuff. Like they, there were these papers that were coming through, and they weren't plagiarized. But like I knew, like beyond the shadow of a doubt, I was like, this sucker didn't write this. Like you, know, like where where the hell did this come from? You know, because so they were ahead of us on on all that stuff. Um, but it makes me think, Sean, like just what you were talking about, about like research and how like I, I, if I think back to like Elmore Leonard, you know, a dude who who never owned a, a computer, um, who, you know, wrote all of his manuscripts longhand. Um, and if he knew, you know, like how much I used a computer to like make what I make. You know, would he think I was cheating? Like, you know, and so. Well, I think Leonard had a, a researcher who went out. And yeah, he did. he did. He <laughs> did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, if I had some dude to to go run, you know, run down to to Guatemala and tell me what you know what that one shop looks like, you know, and bring well, now, back some pictures. Am I am I making this up, or do you write you write longhand, right? Yeah, and that was like this. I do it, and it's all Elmore Leonard inspired, so it's online. Okay. Yellow so leaf. talking about technology and how it changes the way we process things or or yeah. you know, not or whatever. So I, I'd love to hear you talk about like in your brain creatively, what the like, what's the benefit of that manual, like, you know, getting in with the pen and the paper versus composing on a computer or or transcribing once you've written it on like, like how if you're working just on a computer versus you know, writing by hand the way you do, like, how do you feel the, how do you feel technology impacting what you do creatively? Definitely. So I do, this is, this is, I have to special order these pads that don't have any lines. And that was an Elmore Leonard thing. And I think what is, it's like the, the epigraph in Fahrenheit 451, you know, if they give you lined paper, turn it sideways, you know, and like, right. So there's the part with having no lines and just being able to kind of, you know, write that helps. Um, but I do all of that at like five in the morning. I have two kids. If y'all can hear them, I'm sorry. They're running around like crazy. Ma, they got mama pinned up there. You know, daddy, daddy's not on duty to, to keep them in check. Um, so I write from five to seven and I write like, that's where I do like the real kind of digging up of, you know, creating stuff. Um, and then these little, these little things, they have this little fold out, you know, so like I can prop them up and then that's as I type it in, there's like a whole nother layer of writing. So if I need something to research, I'll just put like three X's. And then when I come back to that space, like what you said, like I've already checked my Twitter for the day or check my email, you know, at eight o'clock, I spend the rest of the day, you know, getting those five or six pages transcribed into the computer around classes or lunch breaks or whatever, but I'm kind of staying in that headspace the whole time. But it's that those two hours each morning where it's like, it's completely uninterrupted, it's quiet, it's dark. Uh, I wear noise canceling headphones. So there's some, there's some technology, you know, thrown in it. Um, but yeah, I, what I find is that the manuscripts go in different places and I don't always do that. If a book, if I feel like, I usually do that on a book where I'm trying to be maybe more literary or I'm trying to add a different quality to each line. But if it's a bigger concept sort of book, uh, I will write it, you know, just on by by as fast as I can, you know, by, by typing it straight in. 
So that's what I always find is different. And, and like I write a weekly column for our state paper. I always type those. I write the crime reads interviews, you know, for shop talk, I always type those. So it's just that one specific kind of writing that I feel like I have to kind of go dig it up, you know, each morning. Well, that's what you're saying. Uh, what you just said is kind of getting to the heart of my question, I guess, not to make this an interview with you or about you, <laughs> but I'm really interested. Uh, so when you talked about using the notepad, you used the word writing. And when you talked about using the computer, you used the word typing. Uh, when you transcribe that work into the computer, do you, does it, is it just tight? Is it just a tool to get it into a digital format for you? Or does the facility that a word processor brings to the process, does that, does that create anything new for you? Like creative, like they, you end up creating more when you can do it easier or. Yeah. Or yeah. So it, it does. It almost, I mean, there are passages that come from the writing of long, longhand that go straight in and that are perfect. But as I'm transcribing it, you know, it's kind of a laborious process. And so I'll end up, you know, adding a whole big section of stuff in there that wasn't in there when I was in that first draft. But it, it's a pain in the ass. I mean, really and truly, you know, because I'll, I'll usually aim to write about five pages, which ends up being about a thousand words, you know, in that two hours. And just getting those thousand words like into the computer, it, it really takes me, you know, about about all day, you know, to, to kind of get that in there. And, and you kind of consider that like a revision pass when you're, when you're doing that? Yeah, I guess. And I've got this weird thing where I read everything I write out loud to my mom at night. So once the kids go to bed, I call her and I read her like those thousand words out loud. And so that's definitely like where I finally make sure that everything is right, you know, and like for that day, that one, that scene, those five pages are, are right. So and it's a perfect echo chamber because my mom, I've never written anything that my mom doesn't think is just the best damn thing that's ever been written in a whole world. <laughs> I think my mom would stop taking my calls. <laughs> no, so I go to bed every night, Sean, and I'm like, it's the best damn thing I've ever written in my life, you know? And then mm -hmm. I wake up at five o'clock and I'm like, okay, you know, let's go. But what about you? Are you straight in on a computer? Yeah, I've been, I just, I don't know. I, I kind of like went all in on composing on it. Like I very early like my very first writing when i was coming out of high school i did on a manual typewriter i've never written longhand um and when i switched to a computer it was a lot easier to push those keys so like that's i i don't feel like i can compose longhand because i'm my brain is so attuned to that uh process of composing on a computer and i i'm pretty messy and i you know like I do a lot of tweaking and deleting and, and like shifting things around and like probably overwork things a lot of the time, which is one of the things a word processor lets you do. Um, sometimes I wonder, would I be more precise if I had to get it, if I had to get a line right with my bare hands, would I be more precise? <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing, you have to be able to read your own handwriting in order to do it. That's another problem you know, I would have. I, mine is illegible, so, you know, I never was any good at doing all this. But I find, interestingly enough, if I'm working in a Word document and then I, it transfers over to email or whatever, or if I've got an email thing and I'm transferring it back to Word, that it's, it's entirely different, just shifting the two screens makes oh, a difference. Yeah, Barbara, that's for one of the things, one of my favorite, I can't remember who told me this, but I didn't come up with it. But anytime like you're having to go back and do a fresh read, change the font mm -hmm. and change the size of the font. 
Right. That way, all the words move on the, on the, the document. You're not looking at the same words, you know, in the same spot where you start to scan over that stuff. And that that was just what you're talking about. I mean, it just makes it all it makes it all. So yeah, much. even the review function in Word, you know, it's amazing as you're clicking through. I just finished, you know, what am I? I mean, I spent my whole life writing, not creatively, but otherwise I just finished my my newsletter. And as I'm going through, you know, with the review process i see stuff i see words i missed or you know it's it right. helps every once in a while they'll say no dummy you spell calamon with an i and it's really an a you know it helps you there but it's really uh, you know i got one of the most interesting tips i ever heard that we're going to call up jacob was david morell and i were in his writer's studio in santa fe and he'd been working on a novel but because when he sold first blood to hollywood you know he sold away everything there's a lot of things he isn't allowed to do because, you know, they already own this character. So he was working along on some book and suddenly realized that he was using a name that he couldn't use. And so, you know, he thought of another name and he did a global search and replace for the name and the book that had been just driving him crazy. He could magically came to life with a new name. And it was like, wow, you know, a complete reboot. So that's one of his writer's tips. If you really get stuck, just rename them. Yeah, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the guy that was Pete becomes Harry or something, and wow, it's really different. Well, all of this stuff we're talking about is really we're really just talking about tricking our brains, right? Um, yeah. And and that's you know that that's like, like there again going back to that you know how is technology conditioning the way we think is a very interesting topic. I think it yeah. is. Well, we need to call Jacob up, but let me just in a brief summary say that what happens here is a group of friends are invited by their buddy um, to his private island in the northwest off Seattle apparently um, and when they get there they think it's going to be sort of an old buddy's weekend but all of a sudden it becomes a device-free weekend and then things happen and things happen takes, uh, yeah um, and it's a, it, it happens unexpectedly there's some really um, exciting scenes having to do with weather there's exciting scenes having to do with medical stuff there's a whole lot of exciting scenes so it's a very interesting book and it doesn't go quite where you think it is so i really enjoyed it thank you barbara and thanks for having us eli you know you've got young kids it's dinner time i really appreciate well, we, have to, we have to bring up jacob jacob okay. come out come out from behind the screen and tell us if you have any questions i love the way he does this i feel like shakespeare you know and it's the tempest i just brought <laughs> up when it's Patrick, I say to him, are you Ariel or Caliban? <laughs> it depends on the day. <laughs> hey, Sean, he, Eli. Uh, we have a few questions and comments in uh, from our Facebook stream. Um, this one's from Stephen. Aside from each other, uh, what writers are engaging your interest these days? You want to take this, Eli? Oh, uh, yeah, I've got some. So Everybody Knows by Jordan Harper. I read that book early last year, and it just blew my socks off. I mean, it's just a whole, a whole, a whole, a whole subculture that I did not know existed in LA and, and the way things could possibly, I don't know if they really worked the way Jordan, you know, put them in there. I know it's a novel, but damn, it just, it just opened my eyes. And, and I, I've loved Jordan's style. Jordan's actually from Missouri. Um, so just a couple of hours north of where I am in Arkansas, uh, but has been, you know, ingrained in LA. And that book 
I love the way Jordan writes. He's got this very, you know, Elroy-esque style uh, that's just like a gut punch on every line. Um, that's great. Kelly Jo Ford is is a girl lady out of Arkansas. She's got a great book, just came out this past year, Real Bad Things. Um, so those were really good. Um, Five Decembers, uh, loved Five Decembers last year. Um, Sean Cosby, so, so good on everything he does. And I haven't got to read his new one yet. Um, and I'm dying to read that. So Sean, if you're out there, man, send, send me, send me a book. Um, but yeah, I think that, and then the, the one random one that's like not a current deal is, uh, Walter Tevis. So Walter Tevis wrote the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. Uh, he wrote the hustler, the color of money. Um, and those, I just randomly stumbled upon those books and they were as good as anything I've, as I've ever read. Um, I thought that so the good. Queen's Gambit was marvelous on television. I really liked the actress that did it. And I thought they oh. really got the spirit of the book so well. Yeah, so good. What about you, Sean? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I wanted you to go first because <clears throat> I thought you were going to have a better, you were, you, you'd be better at quickly uh naming some of the people of your what i would kind of kind of consider your generation of writers i think i i feel like there's a there's a crop of newer folks out there that are one two three books in and you yeah. mentioned uh a few of them already and you are one of them as well uh eli who i see a lot of talk um i see a lot of you know kind of buzz and hype on the internet and on social media and then I'll eventually go and check out one of your books. And I've been very impressed with how they consistently live up to the chatter. Um, so like, I, I would, I would echo the, some of the names that you already laid out there. And then, you know, some of, some of the people that have been around for, you know, a while are, you know, are still, you know, the Laura Lippmans and the Megan Abbotts and the Allison Galens and the Alfair Burks, and, you know, they're all still, uh, you know, doing great work. Uh, some of the best work they've done, I believe. Um, and, you know, uh, one, one of my, one of my favorites, Dennis Lehane, I just read his new book that's going to be coming out in, I don't know when, maybe this month or next coming month. Out, now it's coming out in April because Dennis is signing a whole ton of them for us and I'll be doing a Zoom conversation with him. Great. Well, on April you know, 27th, I can already tell you when. The news is he's still got it, right? I don't <laughs> still know. Doing I haven't read it vital, important you know work that kind of punches you in the gut uh, you know like so so i you know i just i'm really enjoying catching up you know and learning about the new voices uh like eli's um and then also you know the people that kind of have been around for a while are still doing really strong work too so there's just all kinds of stuff out it's, it feels like a very very strong time for crime fiction to me generally yes. I agree very much so. Jacob? John, let me echo something there, man. You talked about, you know, like hearing about it and then getting it. So the first time I heard of Vice Free Weekend, I was in Dallas with with David and Victor. And mm. and you, we both know Victor, Victor Gishler. And, you know, he's not the most like glowing guy about, but he was going on and on about yeah. Device Free Weekend. And it, this was way early, you know, like before advanced copies or anything like that. And so then when I got the early copy, it was the same thing, man. It was just like, 
everything he he had laid like all these things out you know about what he really loved about it and then yeah it was just it was everything. Well, now here we go. i'll uh i'll send victor his cash later on flowers yep some roses yellow roses well sean did you want to talk a little bit about your tech background and uh maybe how that informed your rewriting of this book and also um do your previous novels have a technological crutch or is this one unique in that way this one is unique it's 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 unique in the like i said before in the scope and the size i mean the the plot of this book uh affects the globe not just a small group of characters in a specific location um and it's the first book that i've done that i guess could be reasonably called topical um i've always i've always shied away from you know what, what you said earlier eli about liking the candy coated idea that is current and relevant i for for good or for bad i've always uh, tried to avoid those current relative you know relevant topics because i always feel like the flip side of topical is outdated um but this connected world that we live in now is not going anywhere i mean it's it's not a fad it's our life and so it felt it, it, it didn't it felt topical and not topical at the same time to, to tackle this um i i i work for a for a company that makes in my day job for a company that makes software and hardware and my job is kind of a research uh research and development type job and so like I'm not smart enough to build things or code things or or you know I don't have a nuts and bolts understanding of the technology in that way but I see the process of developing a product and I can see um you know you know what it's like what it may have been like for Ryan Cloverhill to build his company and so I guess I guess it informs the work that way of giving you know I I guess I have a little bit of a day job sense of of what it might be like to 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 work at link which is the 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 company in the book the it's the largest social media platform in the world link um and so I I you know my my day job gives me a little bit of a sense of what it might be like to be a linkster I guess Okay, great. Um, well, actually, Eli, I mentioned that there was some philosophical ideas, maybe, um, within the novel, um, or even social commentary. Is there anything else in the book that you talk about, uh, or that you shed light on, other than our growing dependence on these devices? Boy, I think that's probably up for readers to say. I um, uh, that That's the main thrust of what I was going for. And again, you know, reaching back into my own uh, college days and my own, you know, that meeting friends, going to Seattle, learning things in school. Um, I was a, you know, I was a philosophy minor in college. And I say that hesitantly because it makes it seem like I might know something about philosophy now. And I really don't. Um, but I do remember, I do remember that thrill of arguing ideas in a, in a philosophy class. And I remember the, the couple of things that that stuck with me from philosophy made their way into the book. I always enjoyed those sort of ethical problem scenarios, the lifeboat scenarios, like, well, what would you, if you were in a lifeboat, who would you eat first? That, that kind of thing. Um, and one of my favorites was always the trolley problem. 
and so the, if you don't know the trolley problem is it, a it's an ethical thought experiment that proposes if you're on a runaway trolley uh, and you're heading toward um, a group of people on the tracks, you have the ability to push a button or pull a lever and divert the trolley to another track where you would only kill one person instead of killing five people, let's say, but it, but you would have to make a deliberate choice. If you did nothing, you're going to kill five people. Uh, but if you did something, you're still going to be killing somebody and it was going to, and it's going to be your deliberate action that causes that person's death, but it'll be one person and not five, you know, and, and you can, you can stay up late with your buddies making all kinds of crazy trolley problem scenarios. And, and I always found that enjoyable. And so I, I enjoyed putting that, uh, in the book as a plot element, that sort of philosophical thought experiment as a plot element was, was fun to do. Yeah. And Sean, I always like, I feel like that's like, I gave my copy of the book is with my brother-in-law in Nashville. Uh, Cause he, he, he was all about it. And that's how I pitched it to him. I was like, it's one of those, like, it's almost like a, would you rather, you know, like, it's yeah. like, a, you know, like that was the whole thing, but playing off that too, I saw something about like the self-driving cars and like, and I think Barbara said something about these earlier, but they have like, some sort of programming that does essentially the tr the trolley pr problem like so it it's makes like your ethical utilitarian yeah, so if there's like three people if there's three people in front of you like you're going into the side rail yourself you know but like if you have four people in your car and there's one person in front of you like that one person's getting it like there is there's some sort of programming or i don't know if it's in there yet or if it's, i just can't remember but but yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like if we're making these things that are going to have to make these decisions, you know, it's a numbers game. I almost kind of wish I had thought about that for the book now, like the idea of technology actually doing the philosophy for you. That's, I did it the old fashioned way. I made the characters like wrestle with the problem. But think about AI <laughs> and all the concerns we have about, you know, whether they're smarter than we are, whether, you know, they're more ethical, whatever it is, you could have done that would have been really, you can still do it. You can write a different book. Maybe that's the Next sequel. Book, yeah. Sean. <laughs> Anything else, Jacob? That's it. Wonderful. Well, guys, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Uh, good to see you, Eli. Thanks for taking time out. Uh, and Barbara, as always. It was great. It was really fun. So I will hope- hey, Jacob, we'll thanks, for the, thanks for the tech support. Absolutely. Right. So we'll hope that next time, maybe you can actually come in person. That would be outstanding. That'd be great. It would be very nice. Thank you all very much. Don't forget, you can buy a copy of Device-Free Weekend, actually nearly anywhere. <laughs> well, I'll limit you to the poison pen, but seriously- but the poison pen's a good place to get it. Yeah, no. Is there an audio book out there? There probably is. Uh, yeah, there's an audible, uh, on audible, there's an audio version. Um, Zach so, Wagner did the reading, great job on his part. Yeah. I love it. Audio books are really an interesting, different way of, you know, taking in a story in our busy lives while you're driving. Instead of being on your cell phone, you could be listening. Great to way to read while you're like building a fence or, or something. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Anyway, good night, everybody. Have a wonderful evening. Bye. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. 
please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.